Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Now you've removed the barrier not only to understand that workforce, but then to actually go, let me suggest and enable changes that maybe improve your utilization of this benefit because you just had a kid. And like, how do we make it so that it's more fluid and more dynamic and more relevant to each person? Because right now everything's like, hey, we did a survey and we think this benefit will work. And then no one uses it or no one even knows about it. And then you're like, well, what is like, what is the point of all this? It's not quite actually helping the people that it was designed to do so. And I think that's that's been like an interesting um, broader trend of employers getting more ownership or really just like responsibility for, for their employees, but also making sure that anything that's built around it can actually, you know, maximize that in a way that's relevant for everyone. Joining me in the deep end today is Ansel Parikh. Ansel is the co-founder of Finch, an API for employment systems that democratizes access to the infrastructure that underpins the employment sector. Finch recently raised a $40 million Series B. Before Finch, Ansel was a late-stage investor at Kleiner Perkins and Bond and went through the second cohort of OnDeck founders. We're taking a short break from our series on starting companies to talk with Ansel about employment systems. We cover how they landed on the name for Finch, why the U.S. employment regulation system is so complex, how Finch's infrastructure helps companies get to market, and why you should fail as quickly as possible as a founder. Ansel Parikh, welcome to The Deep End. Hey, Marshall. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Super excited to, uh, to have this conversation with you. Yeah, so many different places I want to go today, but let's just start with the most basic. We'd love for you to introduce yourself and then obviously get into like what your company Finch does. Yeah, I'm Ansel Parikh. I'm one of the co-founders, COO of a company called Finch. Uh, and what we do is we are the unified um, API for employment data. And so that means that we kind of sit on top of different sources of truth for employment data, which could be a, a payroll system, an HR system, eventually benefit systems, and we are enabling um, innovative applications, maybe a 401k provider to your local collaboration software, um, to be able to gather information from employers around their entire workforce to make sure that they're delivering the right services and also ensuring that the right people are getting access to the right parts of that service. And so uh, it's a really specific um, odd set of challenges that we have to deal with, but uh, it's actually much bigger than anything that we could have ever expected. Yeah, so that's really great. We love kind of diving into the uh, idea maze with founder types. So like, let's start with just kind of explaining what this space looks like. Because this is just like going to your website, like reading some of the posts about like your various raises. Congratulations, obviously. Thank you. This is just not the type of company which I could see myself waking up and being like, okay, yeah, that's the problem. That's the thing. So like walk us through that. I'll take you back a little bit further because I, I I love to pretend that Jeremy, my co-founder and CEO, and I were, you know, bored to do this. But um, like many people, it's a long winding journey. And so actually it really started in on deck. Um, I'm dating myself here where we were from on deck too. And actually Jeremy and I were both quit our jobs with, with ideas. I won't even call them businesses. And we were doing our things separately. And ultimately um, both shuttered our business at the same time and started 
uh, joined on deck at kind of that early stage of that entire community. And it was really exciting because it was also in person. And that was uh, something that was pretty unique at that time too. And so we both loved infrastructure. We loved really challenging problems that are more related to the, the plumbing of like, how do you get information from one place to another that is maybe located in legacy disparate systems. And so uh, it kind of started this like nine month journey. Uh, and we kind of iterated through about five or six different ideas, products. We actually like launched something and sold it. But ultimately kind of where the genesis for Finch kind of started to really pick up was um, usually it was, it's kind of born into failure, right? And so uh, kind of like a Phoenix type of scenario where we were building a platform at the beginning of COVID uh, before it started uh, around embedded lending. Uh, our thought process was, hey, if, if you want to launch a lending product, it's super complex. There's a lot of compliance. And um, if done right, you can actually unlock a whole ton of value for different types of users and, and customers. And so um, the the maybe the like end goal would be something like, hey, Airbnb can launch a home renovation loan right to their hosts. You can fix your home up. You can charge more on Airbnb. Airbnb collects that money back via the payment trails. That was like kind of the, oh, we could do this. And uh, COVID hit and every every lending partner was like, eh, stop, we're not doing anything here. And um, we kind of hit that crossroads of, okay, do we want to continue working on something that we don't know if anyone will make a loan for the next two years um, or do we figure out something else we should do? And we had a lending partner that also lended to um, small businesses uh, specifically come to us and said, hey, there's this thing called the Paycheck Protection Program, really essential for businesses that were really getting negatively impacted by the pandemic uh, to be able to just keep people on payroll, which I think was a, a really important, but also like emergency program. And so the biggest challenge is for a lender is that in order to get money back from the government, you have to confirm how much to lend someone based off of their actual payroll. And so they came to us and said, hey, we know you all are infrastructure nerds. Like, can you help us get access to employment data from payroll systems so we can make these loans? Of course, we're like, yeah, totally easy. No problem. Yeah. Uh, newsflash, it was not easy. We, <laughs> we like started looking into it and realized it's so much more complicated. There's actually like 6,000 different types of payroll systems in the US alone. And so kind of started this like deep, dark journey um, down in this rabbit hole. And I think for us, we were just like, hey, this is an immediate pain point. Funny thing is we finally, when we finally got something built, the paycheck protection program was pretty much over. And so we had enough kind of interesting feedback from other people just kind of hearing about what we did and said, hey, if you can do this and this, like I'd pay money for it. And so I think it just started that iteration cycle. But frankly, I won't pretend there was like a thesis. It was more just hey, this is hard to get information. Hopefully there's a use case for it that isn't just a short-term government program and um, ended up just kind of snowballing as we started to see that once you unlock access to specific information, new use cases pop up just because there's always people that are looking to innovate or just try new ideas. And if you lower the barriers to entry, you create a, a whole new wave of people that can actually get things done and, and drive value to end customers. I really appreciate how honest that answer was in the sense of there's no thesis, there's no here was January and then there was November and here was the plan. You were just confronted with some very specific problems and different dynamics. So I want to kind of go back a little earlier in your story. I'm yeah. fascinated by your initial idea just in the sense of like, hey, like lenders 
um, Airbnb, like that's a great pitch. That's very coherent. You hit pause, obviously, because of the pandemic, but I think it's easy to say within a year, maybe that business was viable. How did you think through the idea of like, hey, do we gamble on the world getting back to normal, let's say in six months, a year from now versus going on to a next thing? Like walk us through that thinking. I mean, okay, so realistically, we were also just running out of money. Uh, Jeremy was like, hey, I might need to like move into my parents' place. And so uh, we were just like very adamant. I'm like, okay, we got to figure out something. And I, I think the other piece, it's, it's less about, because you can't time the market. We don't know when things, I mean, this is like March, 2020. Like we were just like, oh, world's going to end. I was living in San Francisco and like everything was closed. And so we just had zero visibility. There wasn't much of a bet we could make there, but rather, and it actually, we ended up like tabling Finch for a bit, coming back to it when we got into YC, we hard pivoted in a week. And so maybe I'll talk about specifically, like how did we then like get conviction to come back to Finch and like, what were the things that were important? I think this is something that it's hard to like engineer or pre-engineer. Um, you kind of have to just yeah. go through a lot of iteration. And so for us, we had a bunch of ideas. We were saying we had a previous business that we got into YC with, which was frankly horrible. At one point, it was we were trying to sell to fortune tellers and uh, astrologers. So, like that's a whole different segment. And uh, good learning to not to know when you just even if it's a good business, not something that if you don't want to do it for ten years, like you shouldn't do it. You only have one life. And so we took a step back and said, okay. We need to change our idea. Um, we have a bunch of things that we've done in the past. What are we like uniquely good at? You want to look for that slight asymmetry in terms of like idea, and ultimately it came down to like that founder like product fit, right? And so for one from uh, my co-founder Jeremy, his background is engineering, and then moved into product, but he worked at a company called Smart Car that was APR infrastructure on top of connected vehicles, and so. A lot of the challenges around building that architecture, understanding all of the weird edge cases that happen um, were directly transferable to this kind of employment data ecosystem. And then for me, I'll say more tangentially, we just had a lot. I was an investor um, at, at Bond and, and Kleiner Perkins before, and I spent a lot of time on like some of our fintech and infrastructure investments. And there's a lot of just learnings on how to kind of approach the, hey, there's a huge wide open set of use cases. like how do you start to figure out who's the right person to talk to? And so I just like smiled and dialed. I think at one point we we're doing like 250 calls a quarter. And uh, he was just like, I can stand this up in like a week, like just give me some time. And so that's kind of how we kind of iterated and said, okay, at the end of the week, we're like, well, this is the thing that probably makes the most sense for us to just have some ability to get from zero to point one. And so we were able to build a product in about a month and had our first customer uh in august so july about like three weeks into yc we're like this is a terrible idea let's switch to finch and then um ship some code put out a couple integrations and had uh, a few customers before the end of yc which i think for us just gave us enough momentum to go there's something here let's keep working on it but it was a bit of a forcing function and just like feeling the we need to make a decision here we can't over optimize is there a significance to the name finch Oh man. Okay. I'll tell you the, the story that we, the, the retroactive story. And then I'll tell you the one that is, that we actually tell our team and they're like, wow, really? 
the retroactive story is like that uh, finches are the most adaptable, one of the most adaptable birds on the planet. Um, Darwin's finches, they're actually on like every single continent in the world. And it just kind of shows the adaptability of our team. Also, I think when I was texting Jeremy one time, uh, we typed in fintech into like iMessage and it auto-corrected to Finch. And so we're like, oh, that's funny. Um, and so that's what we tell people externally, like that's what we did. But realistically, actually, oh, what, what actually happened was we were in that process of just like, hey, build a website, start selling before you have anything. And so Jeremy like built a quick website and he's like, hey, what should we name this thing? And I was like, I don't know, think of a bird name or something. And he's like, how about Finch? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and that was it. So it's sometimes, uh, yeah, I, I know that this, I'm now just outing, outing our process here, but um, it, it kind of just stuck and people liked that it was a little bit amorphous and that allows for you just to kind of say, hey, I'm building a bunch of things um, and it doesn't necessarily have to like align with a really literal definition. But uh, yeah, honestly, it was just, we made the decision about like 20 seconds and then just never really changed it. I'm smiling because at the start of the interview, you made reference to dating yourself with ODF2. And I think you're also dating um, both me and you in the sense that uh, it feels very 2010s. Just be like, okay, bird thing. Just like put a bird on it, <laughs> reference some type of bird. You know, there's 40 or 50 different options there. So that's really key. And once again, also appreciate the like, the story you're externally telling versus like the messy way this actually comes about. Okay, so another thing that's just really interesting with the, your opening story is you see this initial pain point of the pay, of the you know paycheck protection program. If you're an employer, like you deeply just need to know like how many people, like how much are you getting from the government, from a bank, like this, 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 and that. When you're zooming out after that program ended though, what different pain points that are more longstanding, less of the moment were you seeing employers systems, et cetera, kind of seeing? I mean, if you go more broader to like employment and, and really like employment data. And I think, like you said, you, you don't like immediately wake up every day thinking like, this is the type of problem I want to solve. But I think we've just kind of very quickly like fallen in love with it just because it, at the end of the day, it like impacts like every working person. And I think right now, like the, the broader challenge that we're trying to solve. Um, and I think it was really kind of uh, highlighted during like COVID pandemic, all these government programs is that um, we still kind of look as a whole at employees and workforces as like blue collar, white collar, right? Um, hourly, salaried. And there's a lot more granularity uh, that needs to be like defined across the entire swath of the human workforce, especially since now it's changing so dramatically. Right now, there's a like the remote hybrid, all of that component favors different groups of people, different types of work, and that there's a lot more complexity outside of even just the payment side of things. And that's why we kind of zoom it out as employment data is that you start to look at different types of companies and jobs have equity as a component. Others have like a large chunk of their things around benefits and unique plans. And so like all of this like compensation, like there isn't really like clarity into, well, what is actually the right mix of those things for any given worker, depending on their lifestyle, the things that they're solving for and like where they live, right? Because for, yeah. you go to a manufacturing facility, like they don't care about equity. They're like, I can't eat equity. Like I need a paycheck and I need to make sure that I can do overtime and have like proper benefits and like workers' compensation and things like that. And so I think the broader like challenge we're trying to solve is the fact that like, even just fully understanding like 
the entire exact employee employer relationship between individuals and their company is like pretty obscured. It's hidden in like a bunch of different systems. And if you're an innovator trying to go, I want to build something for this group of companies that have unique characteristics about their workforce, there isn't an easy way to really define or really understand like, okay, if you're an agricultural worker, I can tell you it's a completely different set of compensation, but also just the way that it's structured and the incentives that an employer has versus an employee. Those things are just not transparent at all. And it's really challenging to go, how do I build something that eventually is specifically relevant for these people in this organization? And I think that's really where we want to go and that we can't keep doing blue collar, white collar. That's just like such a, uh, it doesn't make sense in terms of making eventually policy changes to like major things that impact entire like local economies uh, without having that like more real-time understanding of the entire scope of the employee life cycle at a company. And I think that's kind of where we saw COVID happening. It's just like data that is three months old is being used to make decisions and they're all survey data. It's not even like actual representations of individuals in real time when they're actually seeing the impact. And I think that's something that uh, we want to at least help unlock because I think there's ton more innovation that's going to happen in this space over the next 10 years but like you need the raw materials and right now we don't we don't really have that it's a it's like you have to build an entire mining facility just to get a piece of the ore when you really should have something that's more of a refinery that you can then just go and process what you need yeah a couple of questions come out of that so without trying to force you into uh let's just say like overly heads in the cloud <laughs> here's the future of this, this, like, like talk about the next 10 years, right? Like what's like the direction, what, what direction do you see things moving that's directing how you're actually building the company? Yeah, I, I won't say if it's good or bad. I just more like these are what is happening. And it's um, something that just like, I think requires us to leverage this information a lot more effectively and more compliantly, frankly. And so I think the first is that like, you're starting to see, and it comes in waves, like, employers being more responsible for like the um, well-being of their employees, right? Like you before, like mental health benefits wasn't even a thing, right? Um, but even just like the fact that we still have a system that's like employer-based health insurance, that you really start your nest egg at a 401k, which is then built into your employment. And there's a lot of these government programs, like for instance, 401k contributions like has increased. Uh, they've like allowed it to be, I think, $10,000 more per year. And in California now, uh, every employer that has at least one employee has to have a retirement like benefits plan. And so there's just this like broader change of like, um, and I don't know if it's like the government pushing things off or just really that like the onus is more on the employer to align with the needs of their employees. And I think Generally, that's a good thing, but also creates a stratification because then your livelihood and well-being is associated with like your employer. And depending on how your employer feels about the workforce, <laughs> it can be dramatically different. And I think that's a, that's a challenge. And that's why we really think the, the data understanding of like, well, what is the actual differences between people that work in these types of companies versus others? Is their access to certain things better or not? And does that align with like their needs, especially if they are maybe looking for something more stable and have a family versus someone that is a 20-something tech, like, you know, high-risk person that's like, I want it all in equity and like benefits don't matter because I don't leave my apartment. And like, and so I think that's one piece in terms of just like where things are going. And I think once you have that connected 
and you're able to kind of see and understand those dynamics and the, that relationship in real time, I think the next phase is like, how do you, how do you remove the, the programmatic component of having it be um, all these changes being done within those archaic systems, whether it's like siloed, and how do you have it so that the innovator that unlocked that insight can go, all right, I'm going to make a change that properly optimizes this relationship. And so that's kind of like our whole thing. And still like uh, workshopping it in terms of like really getting it to be solidified, but it's like making the future of like employment both connected and like programmable. And I think that's where you start to then have the ability to layer on analytics and understanding and insights and actually act on them. And that's where the iteration cycle and the ability to make change in, in kind of pockets of innovation or pockets of the workforce is going to be accelerated because now you've removed the barrier not only to understand that workforce, but then to actually go, let me suggest and enable changes that maybe improve your utilization of this benefit because you just had a kid. And like, how do we make it so that it's more fluid and more dynamic and more relevant to each person? Because right now everything's like, hey, we did a survey and we think this benefit will work. And then no one uses it or no one even knows about it. And then you're like, well, what is like, what is the point of all this? It's not quite actually helping the people that it was designed to do so. And I think that's that's been like an interesting um, broader trend of employers getting more ownership or really just like responsibility for, for their employees, but also making sure that anything that's built around it can actually, you know, maximize that um, in a way that's relevant for everyone. You know, you're the perfect one to ask this question. I'm obsessed with the just zero interest rate phenomenon huh. discourse. And when you're talking about how, you know, employers, like they have expectations, maybe they offer like mental health benefits, like all these different dynamics. To what degree do you think the employer-employee relationship, especially in tech, right? Because this is an on-deck podcast, mm -hmm. we're really talking about folks in tech. How much do you think that like late stage 2010s, like immediate post-COVID discussion around like employers, like expectations, like going in both directions, was very much like part of that and what we, what we could have moving forward or something different. Like, how are you thinking about that as someone who's like thinking about that type of question a lot as a literal, at a literal level? Yeah, it's, it's hard because like when you have a ton of money, like you, and your competitors are hiring a ton of people, your incentives then do that. And then uh, there's this like shift towards, okay, what are the things, because it's like also an economic thing. It's like, what do I do not just to get people, but then like keep them? Because that's really like, and they like in retaining great talent is way more it's better ROI for the organization, but also it's like it's better for the people because they're like being taken mm -hmm. care of. And I think I think that was a good wake up. I think the the last couple of years at least have identified like, oh, uh, they've raised the bar, right? I think that's the good thing is that there is a portion of the bar that got raised as part of this whole like talent war, you want to call it, between large companies, and that they're like, oh, we we have to do we have to do better for certain pieces. So I, that's where you kind of see that like financial wellness benefits, mental health benefits. It's like becoming a like a staple. And in, in a lot of cases, it's like getting pushed into medical plans as a whole, which is even better. Um, but there is also this like, you know, it's the pendulum swings the other way. I think there's a lot of the things around like the nice to have things. And also just, I mean, like offices, people are still kind of in that phase of like, do I need this? And even if I have it, like, am I going to show the amenities necessary? Because a lot of it was just kind of superfluous and like more of an advertising, like, look how great it is to work here, even if people don't actually use those things. And so I think there's some rationalization that is 
happening that's healthy. Um, that said, like, you know, I hope it doesn't swing too far the other way. And then it becomes like, you know, your cubicle, you're everyone sitting back in a cubicle and there's like no windows and things like that. And so I think it, it, it shifts kind of back and forth, but I, um, I'm hoping that again, as you get more insight or information on like what is being used, what is like relevant, what actually impacts like productivity, but also just like well-being that actually like moves the needle. I think that's where the next kind of phase is going to go is like, well, now that we've spent all these money on these different things, uh, there's a few things that really do work. Let's A, figure out why they work and see if there's other things we can do that have similar impact. And I think that's where like these budgets shouldn't like disappear, but I think they're going to like rationalize and go, okay, let's take money out of like uh, a workforce collaboration software that is now included in these Microsoft Teams and let's spend that on something that drives like more empathetic communication, right? And there's some opportunities there. I just, I think it's still early to know like what works and what doesn't and how you measure productivity. I think there's always some like very fine line of how you measure that and where you start to um, kind of go over the line and collect data that you really shouldn't. And I think that's something that people are going to need to really pay attention to when making the evaluation of like, is this moving the needle? It's like, well, there's certain information you're just not going to be able to gather and you should be okay with that, frankly, because people have a right to privacy and, and working in a environment that they don't feel like oppressed. Yeah. And, you know, the broad topic of, of this episode in the series are these problems that we see as worth solving. Obviously, you could look at through the lens of like tech and startups and like the broad topic here is employment, unemployment. You know, towards the start of the episode, you were just describing like these like, 6,000 different avenues. Like it's all like a big black box. I would love to ask like one, why is the system just so complicated? Right. And when I say systems, there's like a couple of different systems. Yep. And I think a way then of articulating uh, the following question would be, why then, given that state of complication that you'll explain, is this the time for a company like Finch? Like, was this something we could have done like in 2008? We have done this in 2012, like 2013, this, this, or that. would love to hear both of your thoughts on those. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Uh, and especially that first one around like, why are these systems so complicated? And so there's like, maybe two layers. Um, I'll, I'll put three. So like the first is that <laughs> just the base layer of US tax system is a nightmare, right? It's not even like, oh yeah, different states have different taxes and like different structures. But then on top of that, like if you live in the city of Philadelphia, you have a specific tax. Um, I think it was in Massachusetts. We found that there was a WTF tax and we're like, Wait, literally, this is on someone's paycheck, and it's like worker trade fund or something like that. So it's actually like a proper thing, but literally every county, I think there's about 26,000 different like tax codes and changes every year. And so it's really hard to like maintain and understand that. And so that just like automatically creates a, okay, just if you're hiring people across the country, you're already going to have like a lot more complexity calculating this by hand, especially since it updates all the time and different counties say, oh yeah, we made this change this year and it doesn't apply to this year. And that that's like a huge level of complexity. I think the second layer is that like, then you look at like the different types of workers and like the rules within those states on how they have to get taxed. And again, like construction is different than agriculture that is different than retail. It's different than your like salaried worker. And so there's like a lot more complexity in how people get paid and how that data has to be 
collected and how long it has to be stored because you have to keep this information as an employer anywhere between like two to six years, just like by law. And so there's just like heavy compliance and it's for good reason, right? Like you want to make sure a IRS is like, we want to make sure we're collecting everything, but B like you want to protect workers and making sure that they're getting what they're owed and that they're following the right procedures and regulations. And the final piece is that because it's so complex, like oftentimes you sort of like localized businesses, right? Cause it just, it's hard to roll out like a national product when you have tons and tons of different taxes and different regimes. And so oftentimes in the, in back in the day, it was like literally a mom and pop shop that would go in and just like run your payroll paper and pen. Uh, and it was just based off of the local businesses and local taxes. And I think once you started getting larger nationalized businesses, you started to see the emergence of like more automated systems. So that's like ADP automate automated uh, data processing effectively created a, Hey, let's roll up all these different things into one system. And you started to see that proliferate, but it's still like highly fragmented. And so the challenge or like why I think right now is the time for, for Finch versus say, say 10, 15 years ago. And it's been surprising, frankly, is that the underlying companies, the, the systems, the ADPs, the paychecks, Gustos, they actually like understand like the need to have more of an open data ecosystem because their clients are increasingly expecting, hey, this stuff should talk to the systems that I use. Otherwise, like I'm not going to buy this system. And so oftentimes, especially on the operation side, like you're expecting your accounting system to talk to your payroll system, to talk to your 401k. And if that's not the case, like it actually creates a whole lot of just like paperwork and manual data entry. And so what's exciting is that I think the, in the last call it five years, these systems have really understood like, oh, em- employer choice is like kind of a necessity. Like I need to enable employers to make the choices to, to, buy and build uh, different products that help their entire operational stack like function. And I need to be a key driver of that stuff working together. And so I think that's something that's been like, particularly positive. We didn't really expect that since we kind of thought it might be like banks back in the day with Plaid where mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know how to spell API. And that's like, hey, that's there's different ranges of sophistication. But um, I think by and large, we've been pe- pleasantly surprised and they're like, willingness to go yeah we know that this is something this is where the the world is going we need to have this uh, data be open because it is also it's not just owned by a payroll system it's actually owned by the employer right it is their data and so they should have the ability to share it um, but it needs to be done securely and compliantly and uh, i think for us like the it kind of hit that point where we were seeing people like emailing social security numbers to like different providers just like no encryption, nothing like that. And we're like, okay, this can't happen anymore. And so there's like this transition of behavior of going, yeah, I don't want to email that stuff. But then also on the provider side going, yeah, we don't want that type of security issue either. Let's create a path where this is more seamless, but also again, easier to audit and track so that information isn't getting into the wrong hands. Because it's it's frankly very dangerous, some of the stuff that uh, could be accessed from these systems. You know, I'm kind of curious, like as you're describing all of this, are the primary, um, maybe like customers or people who are experiencing the bottlenecks, are they like big companies or are these startups, right? So if we're going back to the beginning of the episode in the startup journey, when you two are pivoting 
mid YC and pulling this company back and doing this pivot, that thing. I don't think you were thinking about your 401k plans and the fact that the government process worked there. So what, where does, where does startup creation and the bottlenecks that you can encounter there fit into the broad story you're telling about these APIs? So I think, and we do have like large companies using us. And, and again, maybe to remind you, it's like, it's a B to B to B model, right? So we sell to third-party applications who then sell to uh, businesses to be able to access key and pieces of information. And so um, I think for the startups ecosystem, like their biggest thing that we're solving for them, and this is kind of, you're seeing this across a bunch of other, frankly, like verticals is uh, this like unified API concept. It's actually pretty awesome to see. And we know like pretty much everyone in the ecosystem, whether it's construction software to like, um, uh, like accounting systems, there's actually this like proliferation of aggregators on top of key data silos that are pretty complex to build integrations into. And so for really the same value proposition for many of these companies is like, as a starting com- startup, you're like, well, I want to get to market quick. And if you're telling me I have to build 10 integrations and in our ecosystem, like these aren't open APIs really. So you have to like spin up a BD team, go talk to them. Like in some of these conversations and partnerships we've had have taken years to get like locked in. Wow. And so if you're telling a startup like, hey, you can't get to market for another two years because you have to go through I don't know, ADP's entire like partnership flow and convince them that you're worth like integrating with and surfacing in their marketplace, like you're going to have a very like slow, like creep to, to the actual, like getting that customer feedback. And so they'll either resort to just, Hey, manually enter the data or send us an Excel file every week. Um, or they'll maybe try and build one or two integrations in house and see if that can get some traction. And if you can just say, Hey, you build once to us and you're compatible with like 200 systems, like right off the bat, pretty much then they can go to any customer that's using any system and say, Hey, don't worry, I'm compatible with you. Let's skip that part of the conversation and let's get to the part where you're using my product to better understand compensation at your company or to enroll people into specific compliance programs. Um, and so I think that's really been the main focus and why it's exciting to work on like infrastructure is that you're enabling people to get to market and do things and get that feedback. And we've had a lot of companies that are just like, Hey, I have nothing really built or I have built some stuff, but like the first thing I need is this integration. Can you help me out? And we're like, yes, absolutely. Let's see what you can learn from, from that and being able to just start to get the information that gets that flywheel going. Yeah. So for this last section, I just want to ask you some big picture questions. Like we've obviously, you know, had the, you know, acronym like APIs thrown out a bunch. You refer to yourself as an infrastructure guy. Can you just like take a step back and just really key the audience in to this topic? I knew you could have asked you this at the start of the episode, yeah. just because it, it, it's interesting that as you're describing these processes, you could kind of see and extrapolate what you're describing in basically anything. So just talk about that. I'd love to, would love to hear, you know, kind of what makes you think of yourself like as an infrastructure guy before you even got to this. Yeah. I, maybe it's more of like a personality thing too. Like, I think I like getting more into the like nitty gritty, just like, Hey, this is a weird process. Like we have to like figure out how to solve it. Um, and it's not necessarily the things that are like sexy or upfront and center, uh, just because like at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, nothing else does. And I think there's something about the unsexy nature of it that I really like, but also just the fact that like, it's like mission critical. I will say like, 
it's a double-edged sword, right? When you're building something that's mission critical, it means that like there isn't like a th- situation where they're like, oh, this is nice to have, and then like you're gone. It's like, no, I I will build to you because this is something that enables this entire set of products. And that's exciting, but also it means that on the flip side, like when things don't work, you get you get some unhappy people. And and I think that's a again, as a if you think about like in startups, like that's a good problem to have. As much as it sucks and that you have to really swallow your pride and go, like, I wanna learn from this. I don't wanna I don't take it personally. That means they care, right? And that's really important um, when you are building something is like the people really care and when it doesn't work they're like you need to fix this now because that means that a you're solving a burning problem but b that they are engaged and they are using it because they are making they are monitoring to make sure that this is working as expected and i think that's something where i really like that about infrastructure and it's something that also allows me to less focus on the hey, what is the um, bet I'm making on how this data is being used? And rather going, let's focus on like how to get it and put it into a place where people can use it. And I think it's just like a more a supportive thing, right? Where you're saying, I'm going to hold up all these other companies that want to build things quickly, but I like to focus on the how do we make sure that they can move faster um, versus trying to uh, get to the application layer, at least for, for what I like, the types of problems I like solving. Like I like the you know, working with builders, right? And you're building for yeah. builders and you're thinking about like, what are the challenges you're going to face as you hit certain scale? How do we reduce that risk for you? Because ultimately you should be really good at selling your product, differentiating marketing. You shouldn't have to worry about literally rebuilding the same infrastructure that isn't really a differentiator over time across these different like data structures. And so it's been a really interesting, like very rewarding thing, especially when you find people that are building something completely new you've never heard of. And you're like, wait, you need us for that? Like, okay, I will just sit down and tell me more. I want to understand this because this is fascinating. And I would never have thought of it myself. So let's uh, end where we began. Um, I'm happy that you were an ODF2 um, alumnus just because um, ODF is now like back in person. It's in SF. So like actually... As opposed to basically the past tech two plus years, like I think new participants are going to have an experience that's like closer to the one that you actually experienced. Oh, yeah. So it's good to see that kind of sandwiched in there. What would just be your advice for people who are listening, who are either like thinking about um, ODF or are going into ODF and kind of find themselves in your position? As in like, oh, I've got like a couple ideas, I'm trying to find my next, my next thing. Like, how did you connect with your co-founder? Like, how should people think about that broad? Because I think it's whenever I hear people in that space, it's both exciting, but it's also scary because oh. as you two found out, there is actually a deadline. Um, it's cool to be there at month one, but month eight, you're questioning where you're living in your parents' basement. So yes. talk about that part and we'll close there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So maybe I'll, I'll bring it into two pieces. One is like the inner game of like, how do you approach this? And also just like maintain that like mental clarity because it is like it gets foggy pretty quickly when you just keep really running through ideas and then the other piece is um how do you like set yourself up with the right person because i think again half the journey and i think when i think about like the time and, and whatever money spent in, on deck it's like best investment i've ever made in my life right like found my co-founder and we were able to actually stick with it through a long period of time and build something together and having a stellar amazing team and so um, maybe first on the inner game side of things, I think the 
the biggest thing to do is fail as quickly as possible. I know they say this all the time, but like uh, you kind of have to climb that that Dunning Kruger effect where you're like super excited about a new idea, and then like you get super sad because you realize how little you don't know. Like get through that whole process as fast as possible, and then set some sort of goal of like I need to get this level of validation, whether it's three customers willing to just even sign up to. Um, spend an hour to talk to me about their problem and and like set really small goals. And if you don't hit them, you go like, if it's well within your control, then you go, you know what? Like this isn't working, like table it and move on to the next thing. I think the challenge is like you get like, like you start to fall in love with like a solution and really like you need to focus on the problem. Otherwise you start to have this thing where you're kind of like channeling conversations and feedback into a, a little box that you've created that's like no like tear that apart and so i think a lot of it is just like don't be emotionally attached to ideas and just seeing like this isn't going to work i maybe spent two months on it but if it's not going to work it's not going to work or i'm not the right person table it um so that's the first thing and that's hard to do it just takes practice the second around like finding a co-founder and i think this is something that we did and it worked out really well but it took some time and iteration is um they call it co-founder dating. I always find that uh, funny because sometimes both our partners are like, you talk to each other more than you talk to us. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> so it really is kind of feels like a marriage. But the, um, the main thing to do, at least what we did, that I think really helped was if you do find someone you maybe, maybe gel with is set a three-week sprint. Be like, hey, okay, we have an idea or we're going to work on this little thing. Um, here's our end goal. We want to hit this goal. And let's every single day talk to each other and talk about like, what are we doing? And then um, throughout that process every week, try and find some other group that's in a similar stage and be accountability buddies. Like I think that dramatically helped a us not feel like we're just in an echo chamber, but B um, you get that encouragement from others. And I think that's like a biggest part about on deck that really accelerated for us was the, that community is super. I mean, I still talk to people in current on deck <laughs> things. And because I think that, that it compounds and it's uh it's really helpful for my like supporting yourself and helping you think through problems and giving you that real feedback so it's like set that goal that's like three weeks out we're in a like hard goal here and then every week check in with another team that's doing the exact same thing and say hey i mean not to quote you on us because i'm not a huge fan of that whole situation but like what did you do last week right and that's actually like a really good thing to just force accountability and go well if we didn't do the things we said we need to do or those things change like let's do a quick like review of that and then plan the next week out i think that's been it just like adding structure i think that's the hardest part about this whole thing on deck is only unfortunately what is it maybe 10 weeks like if it was like six months that'd be amazing because that actually is yeah usually how long it takes to get through this whole maze but it is like the best place to start with it because then you at least have a group of people that are on that same path as you yeah, I think that is a great place to live it. And so I've really appreciated, um, <laughs> I think both ends of how, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're both telling the story, but how you're, you're having to actually internalize how a story comes about. So I think your, your ability to reconcile the two of those over, over a podcast recording is, uh, genuinely, um, admirable. Um, is there anywhere you'd like to shout out folks to like go if they want to learn more, like relevant articles, like blog posts, like your actual company website? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're building anything for the future of work or really just want to understand what employment data is, like, hey, I'm definitely happy to jump on a call. Uh, if you shoot an email to 
ansel, A-N-S-E-L, at tryfinch.com. I try to answer them all the time, but I love jumping on calls and really just understanding and brainstorming with people as well. Um, and then also, if you're interested in just you know signing up for API keys or just reading through some white papers, um, uh, tryfinch.com, T-R-Y-F-I-N-C-H.com is, is the place to go. Excellent. Thank you for joining me on The Deep End. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marshall. Thanks for joining us in The Deep End. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.